Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We are in Luke 4, verses 21 through 30. This is a continuation of what we did last week. And I have to give you the heads up. I'm looking at my notes. There's some wonderful information from the Greek for us and with some also interesting analysis of the Old Testament passages that we're going to refer to So, um, with this gospel lesson. So enjoy today. And Alan, why don't you get us started? Thanks, Christy. Um, yeah, our lesson for today contains the rest of the story, so to be, so to speak, uh, of what we began last week. I don't really like the fact that they separate it this way, but they do. Uh, this is Luke's account of the beginning of Jesus' public ministry by announcing his mission to fulfill the work of the servant of the Lord and to bring the year of the Lord's favor. And that was the main theme, as we saw last week, of the first part of the narrative, that Jesus would bring God's salvation in the form of liberation that is both spiritual and social in nature to his people and through them to the whole world. Now, this story of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth is recounted in all three synoptic gospels, although Luke either had a much enhanced version of this story as a source, or he has enhanced the episode so that it Mm. provides a proper inauguration for Jesus' public ministry. And And actually, if I had to choose between the two, I would say the latter, because um, as I mentioned uh, recently, you know Luke does this in Acts mm-hmm. quite a bit. He takes the speeches that the apostles give, and he words them in such a way that they they really uh, convey the thematic elements of the book of Acts. And mm-hmm. and this is you know again some might say well he's just putting words on people's lips. No, this was really good writing style for even for historiography of right. the day yeah and yeah. so um there was there was nothing inappropriate with that it was just really you know to have to have your story of a person's life or right. of, of the church have a have themes that are consistent yeah yeah that was that was an important it thing. actually you know as I, as I got reading this I you know I've, I've read this like many of us many times mm-hmm. and it's always been a bit puzzling I mean it's one of those verses I really have to process through mm-hmm. and uh it's just thinking about this is this launching of Jesus ministry is actually really brilliant when you, when, when we, you know, as we're going to look at the rest of it and, and how, um, and how it, it kind of almost foreshadows really right. Jesus's role. Oh, it does. It, do, it does foreshadow Jesus's role in a very real sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So tell us exactly where we begin this week then. <clears throat> so this week we begin with the verse we ended with last week. They, okay. The Revised Common Lectionary does this sometimes when they break things up. They overlap the, the, the verses. We saw that with the Bread of Life discourse mm-hmm. last year with John. And so it starts with verse 21. Then he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And as I mentioned last week, the theme of fulfillment is one that is common in the New Testament, although it's not common on Jesus' Hmm. lips. Now, one of the major themes in Luke and Acts is the way he draws a connection between the events of Jesus' life and ministry and the work of the early Mm -hmm. church with the broader narrative of salvation in Scripture. A lot of folks, uh, Luke scholars, Acts scholars, have pointed this out. Um, that uh, Luke is really keen to write the story of Jesus and the story of the early church into the larger story of God's saving work, beginning with Abraham. Mm. 
And, and so Luke has already paved the way for this, I think. We see in the infancy narratives with the various echoes of biblical themes. And now Jesus' straightforward declaration that the scripture has been fulfilled mm-hmm. in your hearing announces sort of the crucial turning point in the story of salvation mm-hmm. reaching back to Abraham and forward to the church. Now, in saying this uh, to the crowd, I mean, how does the crowd respond? Well, and you know... Uh, I try to put myself in that position, and I, I, I wonder how I would respond. The response on the part of the crowd at the synagogue is initially very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, the new RSV translates it this way, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. Now, the Greek text simply uses the verb martyreo. They bore witness or they attested to him, but that verb martyreo can also indicate verbal approval. They spoke well of him or they approved of him. And also the word for amazed, thaumadzon, uh, thaumadzo, we've seen that mm-hmm. before, and it it's also suggests a positive response. Half of the occurrences of thaumadzo in the New Testament are found in Luke and Acts, uh-huh. and the word typically indicates sort of marveling at something that's wonderful or someone uh-huh. that, that who is, you know, and, and it's, in, it's in a positive sense. Although there are some exceptions to the idea and to this when the idea is really one of astonishment. Mm-hmm. You do see that a few times. But this re- positive response is then reinforced by the fact that they described his sermon in the synagogue as gracious mm-hmm. words and literally words of grace. Um, and so then um, all of that together, really, they bore witness to him or they, they spoke well of him. They were amazed at the words of grace that came from his mouth, all of that really indicates, I think, a very positive initial response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the final part of the crowd's response may seem different at first glance. They said, is this, is not this Joseph's son? And I think we, we tend to wonder if that's more of a negative response, mainly because of the way it's used in the other Mm -hmm. gospels. As I said, this story of Jesus rejection at Nazareth is in all three synoptic gospels and in Matthew and in Mark, Mm -hmm. basically they take offense simply because they know him. Right. Right. And, and so in, 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 you know, I mean, in fact, Matthew says specifically in Matthew thirteen fifty seven, after quoting something similar to "Is not this Joseph's son?" He, Matthew says, "And they took offense at mm-hmm. him." And so, um, um, we, I think, because the other gospels tend to use that kind of language in a negative sense, we we tend to want to read it that way here. But it right. doesn't make much sense to read it as a negative okay. objection here. I think it's really simply another element of the amazement. They're amazed. Yeah, amazed. Wow, we we know who this is, and what gracious words he's spoken to us, mm-hmm. and you know they're they're. Um, speaking well of him. And and so I think that's important for us to see that in Luke's account, um, the the audience at the synagogue in Nazareth responds to Jesus very positively. Mm-hmm. You know, when when I was thinking about this, of course, you know, our, our earlier account of, of Jesus at the temple, mm-hmm. um, and that had a positive response right, to the right. young man there. Yeah, so that kind of fits it at least indeed. where he's at before he really jumps off with his ministry. Sure. So I don't know that's what came to mind when you said that. And I thought, obviously with the reformers and the collapsing, they're going to see this as a more negative response. That right. seems kind of natural. But um, now as I think about it in the context of Luke, this is kind of uh, yep. 
kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, again, this is different from the way the episode unfolds in Matthew and Mark, where the synagogue audience takes offense at Jesus simply because they know him. There's nothing else really involved in it in Matthew and Mark's account of of the rejection at Nazareth. It's just simply, you know, hey, we know this guy, Mm -hmm. and, and that's why they take offense at him. But in Luke's gospel, Jesus is the one who seems to provoke the negative response by his comments that follow. Um, Luke reports that Jesus says, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. Um, Now, this proverb, uh, or the the Greek word is parabole, uh, about a physician is unique to Luke's gospel, and it was rare actually in the ancient world. It wasn't one, physician, cure yourself. That's that's not a very common proverb. Um, and and we, we you know as I mentioned before uh, last week you know we see some of the seams of of the gospel tradition here almost in that you know while this stands at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Obviously, they've heard that he's done other things elsewhere, <laughs> right? Like specifically at Capernaum, right? And so um, that kind of brings out, you know, the fact that Luke has has relocated this story to the mm-hmm. beginning of his right. his narrative of exactly. Jesus' public ministry. Exactly. Now, Luke continues by reporting that Jesus quoted a saying that seems more proverbial in the New Testament, I would say, and that is, "Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown." Uh, this quote is found in all four Gospels in some form. Um, he quotes it in the connection with the rejection of Nazareth in, in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. And then there's also a similar quote in John 4, 44. Oh, yes. Now, interestingly, this saying, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown, is quoted together with Dr. Cure Yourself in the Gospel of Thomas, oh, Logian 31. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. So um, that's interesting. Now, there's an irony here, I think, that's easily overlooked. Francois Bavon, in his um, Hermeniae commentary on Luke, uh, points out that in the Septuagint version of the Jubilee year legislation, everyone was to return to their homeland. And it's the same word, patris. Oh, interesting. Um, it's the same word that's used in 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 um in luke here when it says do also in your hometown it's patris um and um it can mean either homeland or hometown and so the fact that jesus launches his ministry Mm -hmm. in his patris in his hometown nazareth is fitting since he's announcing the arrival of the year of the Lord's oh, favor. Wow. And That's I think, really you know, I mentioned, yeah. I mentioned before, you know, there are all, there, there are these times where it's like Luke seems to really know or have access to a copy of the Septuagint because putting that together, I, that doesn't seem coincidental to me. That's really that, interesting. That Jesus well, would announce the year of the Lord's favor a, in his patris and in the Septuagint version of the 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 the, the, the Jubilee well, year legislation why, that's specifically why mentioned. Why wouldn't Luke have a copy of the Septuagint? Well, you know, um, in AD 300 or whenever it was, the Emperor Constantine commissioned 30 copies of the Bible in Greek, which would have included both the New Testament and the Septuagint right. in the Greek. Right. Well, 30 copies was something that 
<laughs> an empire could produce, right? right? So the question would be where he would get access to it. That's the question. Because having, yeah. having a whole copy of the Septuagint would have been... But people would have copied it. I mean, it would have been handwritten copies. Perhaps. Um, Perhaps. Or yeah. I, I, there were libraries. I mean, right. you know, I, right. I, I did some some research back on the Roman libraries. And as soon right. as Rome set up a town, they set up a library. Right. And, and I would think the Septuagint would have been in that as well. I might be wrong. I don't know if we know. I, that, that'd be an interesting I mean, thing I, I think it's a fairly de- decent bet that, that any library in Alexandria would have had a copy mm-hmm. of the Septuagint, right? I think so, too. Um, whether a library in Jerusalem would have had that, I, I, I guess you would think it would. I would think it would if it was a well Here's because the thing. Jerusalem they wanted it to be this Greek city right. and they had a library that I, I'm speculating friends um, might have had right. um, uh, a, a copy of it here's the deal by the end of the first century the Jewish community had rejected the Septuagint for their own different versions of the Greek text right. because the sure. Septuagint had become the Bible of the church exactly Yes, and so that does make sense. Yeah. But I still think the library was still Perhaps, yeah. Roman oriented. Right. Uh, it, that's, it's hard I to think say. that's that's about the only way that Luke would have had access yeah. would have been, I think, in a library. And probably yeah. I, I, there's some great archaeology going on, and we are finding some of this stuff. But it's really unlikely that we would find out right. whether that was true or not. That would be I mean, cool. Is, would that it be, would cool? be cool? Yeah, yes, that would be cool. Yes. And so basically it seems that in Luke's account of the story of Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, Jesus is perhaps testing the initially positive response of the crowd at the synagogue at Nazareth. He's pushing them intentionally. And, of course, as we know, they would fail the test. Now, Jesus proceeds to cite biblical examples of prophets who were rejected by their own people and who extended God's grace to those who were outside of Israel. It's important to note this. Both Elijah and Elisha were sort of um, gadflies (laughs) in their time, Uh, especially Elijah. uh, You know, he was he was um, public enemy number one to the royal court in Samaria. Uh, right. uh, of the northern kingdom Israel. And so, um, um, again, you know, the fact that, the, and yet, of course, by by the time of Jesus' day, they were considered to be, um, you know, the highest example right. of pro- Jewish Pro-pro- prophecy. Prophecy, right, so, exactly. <laughs> they were sort of the high point of Jewish yeah, prophecy, biblical prophecy in the, in, the, in the time of Jesus. So it's kind of ironic, yeah. So, and from this, in the discussions and these examples from Elijah and Elisha, um, we um, we hear about these specific stories. Yes, we do. So, why these stories? What do they tell us? Well, first, Jesus reminds them that there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And so, again, it's basically a prophet is is extending God's grace to someone who's outside of Israel. And here it's the widow at Zarephath. Now, if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, you find that um, in judgment on Ahab's reign over the northern kingdom of Israel, Elijah was sent to declare that a drought that lasted three and a half years you know, would, uh-huh. would, would come. And initially, Elijah was sustained in the wilderness east of the Jordan. But finally, when the drought was so bad, Elijah was sent to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, where the Lord promised that a widow would feed him. 
So then the widow in question was herself in dire right. straits. Uh, you, if you remember the story, yep. she is about to, uh, when Elijah met her, she's about to prepare a final meal for herself and her son. But Elijah promised that the jar of meal would not be emptied and the jug of oil would not fail. And so God's grace not only sustained the widow and her son, but this also became the means of sustaining Elijah himself during the drought. And I think that's really, in the original setting, that is the primary message, is that the Lord was sustaining right. his faithful prophet Elijah by any means necessary. Right. Um, now, of course, the fact that this sustenance came at the hand of a Phoenician widow is part of the story, and that's the detail that Jesus right. emphasizes. Uh, it's hard to imagine that this story, you know, to me, it's hard to imagine that this story would not have been well known in Jesus' day, you know, because Jesus, Elijah yes, goes on course. to raise the widow's son from the dead, well, and then the episode concludes with the conf confrontation between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Well, exactly, this, and Elijah is the prophet, yeah. so this absolutely It's, it's hard for me to imagine that this was not a well-known story. I'm sure it was. Yeah. So then Jesus goes on from there to recount the story that there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Mm -hmm. Now, again, Jesus is relating a story from the Hebrew Bible in 2 Kings chapter 5. And this is one of a number of episodes. If you read these stories in 2 Kings, it seems that they're recounted for the primary purpose of demonstrating that Elisha did indeed inherit a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And so... Even in a foreign country, a young girl who had been taken captive from Israel told the wife of Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, about Elisha. Mm -hmm. And when Naaman approached the king of Israel, Elisha sent word to have Naaman come to him that he may learn there is a prophet in Israel. Again, this seems to be the main point of these stories in the context of Second Kings, is that there is a prophet in Israel. Mm -hmm. So while Naaman's identity as a foreigner is sort of incidental to the original story, Jesus points out that once again God's grace was shared with one who was outside of Israel. Right. Uh, and interestingly, Francois Bavon in his in his commentary raises the question whether perhaps the church at Antioch could have been responsible for adding these biblical examples to the narrative, since both of them concerned Syria and you know, we may not recognize this, but the the, the original place where they mm -hmm. were called the, the Christians were called Christians right. was in Antioch of Syria. So huh. <laughs> That is, um, yeah, yeah, that's kind of like the Capernaum connection yeah. with Mark, you know, that whole chapter sure. in Mark and Peter's house and, and right. maybe a house church at Peter in, in Peter's house in Capernaum. Uh, you know, you have a similar possible connection here with the church at Antioch. Uh, in, in, interesting. I, I, of course, just as I listen to it, it doesn't really, I mean, it fits with Luke's kind of yes. reach to the Gentiles yes. anyway that we talk about, right. but. That's it's, an interesting hypothesis. It's an interesting yeah. hypothesis mm -hmm. and nothing more. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. So I, to me, I think you put all of this together. You know, Jesus pushes them, do hear what you what we've heard you that you did in Capernaum. Um, no prophet is 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 welcome in his own hometown um you know there were there were plenty of widows in israel but elijah went to the one who was in phoenicia and there were plenty of lepers in in the time of of elisha but no one was cleansed except naaman the syrian commander all of this then provokes the anger of the crowd at uh -huh. nazareth they were full of amazement 
and wonder at his gracious words while they were envisioning the inauguration of the year of the Lord's favor in their midst. Well, exactly. Their, yes. their favor. Yes. yes. And that's, yes. I think that's the key there. I think it is. They, they love him when he's telling them that God's favor is going to come upon right. them. But the notion that God's gracious favor might not benefit them, but rather those they considered outsiders and therefore unworthy, was too much for them to bear. And so Luke tells us that that when they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. Not only that, he says that they got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they might hurl him off the cliff. Now, this was one form of execution by stoning. But I find it ironical that Luke says that it was the synagogue, all in the synagogue that were filled with rage and drove Jesus out of town to kill him. And then I also find it hard to take in the fact that, you know, many of the people who may uh, right. in the synagogue may have known Jesus as he was growing up in Nazareth, and now they're trying to kill him. Right. I mean, that's it. And, and, and this is such, seems like such a sudden shift. It is. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important to note that in Luke's gospel, Nazareth is kind of functioning as a paradigm for the Jewish people as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bovon even suggests that perhaps there may be an intentional connection with the fact that in both Nazareth and Jerusalem, the people sought to murder Jesus out of the city. And that's the phrase oh. exotes polios that we have here in verse 29. Now, we see this especially in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13 emphasizes the fact that Jesus was crucified outside the city. But we also see it in Acts because this same phrase, exotes polios, is used for the attempt to murder Stephen by stoning in Acts 7, 58, and the attempt to murder Paul by stoning oh. in Acts 14, mm-hmm. 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, you know, as I'm listening for this i i keep thinking of that you know sometimes i think we tend to think of jesus as just kind of having this um this very simple kind of walk through life until until we get to the passion week mm-hmm. and this is a reminder that he is controversial and 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 always always in danger yes. and i think i, I it, it really it really makes his his cause urgent and edgy if yes. you will yes and i think I think that's something that that um, you see in John's gospel to some extent. Yes, uh-huh. you see that in John's gospel, and um, maybe not so much in Mark, um, because in Mark, you know, um, the the opposition seems to grow. But remember, you know, we saw that it was in Mark chapter two, I believe it was, or Mark chapter three at the synagogue after he heals the man with the withered hand in in um, uh, in the synagogue that the Herodians and the Pharisees took counsel together how to basically yep, that's true. execute him that's how, how to murder true. him so it's it <laughs> so, definitely is present yeah. there i think i think this theologically this reminds me about a little bit more about this kind of freedom to reject jesus right mm-hmm. it it kind of it kind of takes away this this is all going to happen it's all kind of predetermined mm-hmm. exactly that it reminds us that you know we're called and mm-hmm. and are, are you listening and this really pushes well that and out. i think i think one of the things you know that was that that jesus pushed against was this whole notion that when god's favor comes it's going to benefit the Israel, the, right. the Jewish people, and not the Gentile exactly. dogs. Exactly, exactly. And, and that's exactly that was the phrase they used: the Gentile, Gentile dogs. dogs. Uh-huh. And and um, you know the fact that Jesus would would 
would proclaim a kingdom of the Lord's favor where, you know, God's favor can extend to anyone and everyone that, that's, that, that pushed them to the well, point of rage in their mind. Right. Yeah, it so, was blasphemous. Yeah. yeah. And it pushed them to the point of rage, yeah. rage. Yeah. So despite the rage of the synagogue, Luke tells us that Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way in Luke in four thirty. And you know, this, his ability to escape from the crowd may have seemed to be nothing short of miraculous, but the way Luke describes it, you know, Luke says nothing about any intervention on his part or God's. He just simply said Jesus passed through and went on his way as if it were the most natural thing in the right. world. The language, the Greek phrasing of, of verse 30 is just very commonplace. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was I was kind of taken by that when I looked at it this, this time in, in preparation for today. Nothing and more yet, natural. I think what I love is that... <clears throat> He includes this in here like this. He doesn't. He doesn't skip from this episode to something mm-hmm. different. He gives us this image, and so, uh, and then that he gives it in this very simple Greek. That's that's an interesting um, uh, maneuver by by Luke. I yeah, think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you know something miraculous may have happened. Who knows? It may have been just the power right. of Jesus' person, or it may have been something, some intervention on God's part. We don't know how he escaped from right. them. But, um, you know, the way Luke phrases it, it's just very, just like, yeah, Jesus went away. Yeah. (laughs) We went on his way. Interesting. (laughs) Well, so why don't you sum this up for us? What? Yeah, so altogether then, the story of Jesus preaching at Nazareth in Luke's gospel sets the tone not only for his ministry, but also for the ministry of the early church that will follow in the book of Acts. And Jesus returns to his homeland to announce that he would be inaugurating the year of the Lord's favor. That's an important point. Uh, The Jewish people's response was initially favorable when they envisioned Jesus' ministry benefiting them, but their wonder turned to outrage at the prospect that the Lord's favor might benefit Gentile dogs. And so precisely the point of the two narratives or the two episodes from um, Elijah and Elisha is that God's grace cannot be constrained. And so the implication is that the Lord's favor will extend not only to those among the Jewish people who will accept it, but also in Luke's theology, it will go to the ends of the earth, as we see in Acts one yeah. eight. We have to. I think we have yeah. to read Luke. You know, here's here's the here's the mistake I think that was made early on in the nineteenth in the in the in the twentieth century, when um, H. J. Cadbury, I believe it was said that Luke and Acts are two volumes of a one volume work. They are not. Uh, Luke is a gospel. Yeah, Acts right. is a very different narrative. Um, the content is very different. They purport to be written by the same author, and I don't think there's any reason to doubt that. And there is a consistent and coherent theological message, right. and there are themes that tie them together. But that's not a two-volume work. That is two volumes by the same author tied together by common themes. Uh, And so it's important then to read Luke with Acts in mind, uh, but... But you know, not to, well, you know, that's I have heard that, to preach that so many times. Uh, well, it became it became sort of the common wisdom of New Testament studies in the 20th century. And I remember the first time this was in the 90s. The first time it was a friend of mine, um, Mike Parsons, and um, another scholar. I can't remember his name. Uh, they wrote a book called "The Unity of Luke and Acts." Yes, uh-huh. and so then they 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 were the first ones to really call attention to the, the, that I rec- recalled anyway, calling attention to the fact that we should really speak of Luke and Acts 
for the longest time, it was Luke hyphen axe, right? With that, yeah, Luke yeah. hyphen axe, like it's all one it's word. All one. It is not. Okay. If it had been, it would make no sense. One of the things that would have made no sense was just the manuscript history. Luke and Acts are never combined. They're never written. Right. They're never you, you don't written find them thing. copied one after the other in any manuscript of the New Testament. Luke is with the Gospels, if it's in a collection at all. Acts is with the general letters, usually. It's oh, not because wow. yeah. typically the collections of, of New Testament books in the earliest manuscripts were Gospels, Paul's letters, including Hebrews, and the general letters introduced by Acts. That was the typical uh, arrangement. And so why would they separate Luke and Acts if they were right. originally one, one right. two volumes right. of well, a one-volume work? Yeah, and if it's one volume, we wouldn't start over with the introduction right. in Acts. It would have this kind of continuity within. Interesting. I hadn't... I, I hadn't really thought about it. It's just that I have heard that preached so many times that mm-hmm. I think it became assumed. Maybe It, it became mm-hmm. the common wisdom in the 20th mm-hmm. century, and it was only in the 90s that that became questioned. And yeah. I don't know how many people really recognize that Oh, I'm that sure they don't. <laughs> I'm sure we could go listen to a whole bunch of those same same yeah. um, same uh, sermons today. But so. I, th- I do think we, we can speak of the unity of Luke and Acts, and that basically they have coherent theological themes. Oh, and, yeah. and so then this idea that the Lord's favor will extend to not only the, to the Jewish right. people, but also to the ends of the earth. This is something that's, you know, Luke is already setting up right right here at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He's already setting up this theology, this theology that's yes. going to be fulfilled in Acts. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that, you know, is, it reminds me of really, as I'm looking at the brilliance of the author mm-hmm. that Luke is. So mm-hmm. yeah, thanks. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to turn to Christy and see what she found in the Reformation era. Sure. And today I look um, at Calvin's commentaries in general. So it's interesting within the context of this, just the number of Reformation themes that he pulls out in the commentaries. And um, I just I think it's interesting because Calvin really does come at Scripture with a lens um, of these of these themes that are so important to the Reformation process. Probably the the one that I caught my attention the most was his emphasis on hearing the word. And that comes from verse 21. Oh, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing, right? As opposed to your reading. And I, well, and some New Testament scholars point out that pointed out the hearing as opposed to the seeing of the things yes. that were happening, right? And Calvin would agree with that as yeah. well. And um, this hearing of the word is really central to the Reformation. Um, and we've talked quite a bit about the role of print, the printing press, and the printing the Bible in the vernacular languages. And so we think about this kind of um, reading of Scripture. And and that, indeed, that was a big deal, to have the Scriptures available for everybody. Um, and we talked about it then this, how this led to the printing revolution and an emphasis on education. I think there's an implication, though, that then, okay, so this this sudden literacy and as a literate population. All of a sudden everybody can read. Right? And, <laughs> and that is not, is not so actually. And, um, it, that's, a, that's a long process. In fact, it's not until, um, really the late 19th century that you really get a, a full push for universal education. I mean, right. it begins in the 16th century, but 
where it becomes a requirement by by the United States and France, these modern countries, to actually implement universal education. So Yeah, it's a fairly recent development. Yeah, so 16th century is the beginning of that process. So there's... Most of these people are still technically illiterate. Well, we still have people today who Absolutely. are illiterate. And, yeah. and, and and we're not talking because they come from a different country. We're talking about people who were born and raised in this country. Exactly, you know? exactly. So um, w- even though we have, of course, a written word, um, what, what becomes important, if you have it written and you have someone that can read, then you have people that can mm. listen. And that's really the biggest shift, is there's usually somebody that can read or can make their way or can teach themselves to read. So people are listening more. And I think we talked last week about then how important, for example, the medieval preaching was. And to hear somebody preach and preach well with some dynamic and, and bravado um, led people this great excitement. And so there was this kind of uh, space. I, I, want, I want to go on aside here. We have so much noise in our world today. You know, mm. I can take my iPod and I can get podcasts like we're doing right now and I can get music and I can get, I, there's so much noise, but in an era um, where you can't just have noise at your fingertips, uh, music or uh, somebody speaking uh, intelligently or even with excitement, though that is rare. It's a bigger yeah. deal to well, listen. yeah. You don't have music unless somebody can play it, exactly. and you don't have you don't have the spoken word unless somebody can read it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's it's a different time. Mm-hmm. So it's much what is available is it, people are much more in tune with. Sure. Anyway, um, well, and you know, one of the things I thought about here was um, um, people reading aloud, and you know that. I don't know a lot about this, but um, I've encountered the the fact that f- for a long time, when people read to themselves, they read aloud, mm-hmm. even. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess that probably would have been the case in, in this time. Yeah, I'm sure it was. Yeah. I, I don't know that we can ever prove that unless somebody actually talks about it. But mm-hmm. it is in the house pistol. So there's a whole series of... Um, instruction books for the house father mm-hmm. on how he should educate his family as as the head of the household in their Christian education. And his job was to read scripture sure. to them. Sure. Um, if indeed he could read. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a big, it was a big part of the, what becomes part of the education tradition within the household. Because people need, and remember we talked earlier, people needed to hear the word. That was Luther's belief. And what was being read in the Mass was in Latin. Right. And not that many people could understand right. it. They, I think they understood it was holy. You know, it was read with some reverence. And, um, there well, was this, Latin was a, was, a, was a language of academicians exactly. in that day, and basically. And those folks could understand right. it. So, but it really divided, you know, mm-hmm. the, those with education and those who didn't have education. And of course they talk about instead the, in a Roman Catholic tradition, and they had these beautiful images, right. you know, that would, would, so the people would have some understanding of the life the of images Christ. images educated people. Right. Yeah. But and while images are great, what nuances of right. and what some of these details we talked about today's reading, um, you just would never sure. hear. You would never become part of your your uh, vernacular of the Bible. Um, so, as we know, um, 
this shift then, remember from this preacher who's preaching outside with Calvin and Luther, then this idea, we need to make sure we're having it in worship mm. and the preaching needs to accompany reading. So the, the medieval Catholic preaching was taking outside the church. Frequently, building. not always, yeah. Yeah. but often it was, mm. or it was outside of at least the mass yeah. it was done. Right. So they had different scenarios, but for Luther and Calvin, you aren't preaching unless you are also reading the word. Yeah. And it's you're exp, you're expounding on the word. Mm-hmm. So this is this is and of course this is the core of our worship today, right? Well, and I would say that's even even in churches that may only have one scripture reading, you know, um, that are very far removed from Calvin and Luther, you know. Um, nevertheless, in the Protestant world, that's still uh, that's a norm in a lot of places now, mm-hmm. you know, in some of the newer churches, you know, the, the seeker friendly churches, they've changed that. But, um, yeah, that, as I think mm-hmm. about, you know, my experience with churches outside of the magisterial reform, you know, right. um, that, that pattern still pertains. It is. It yeah. is. I remember once as a kid, um, the pastor asked, what's the most important part of the church service? And I was like, well, the sermon. And he goes, well, no, it's the scripture. But then he pointed out, look, every time you hear a sermon, there's a scripture with it. And, you know, I was maybe 12, I'm not sure. And and it was really that kind of aha that I do when I hear you talking about God, we are reading scripture first. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so this is one of those things I think we take for granted in our tradition, yeah. but that is so central to our 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 Protestant theology, sure. if you will. I've heard, I've heard folks who... Uh, were friends of mine in other churches uh, where the pastor wasn't really doing a very good job of preaching. Uh, in this one specific case, um, one of the frequent complaints I got was that um, every sermon was about him. Oh, and and you know the comment that this elder made was that well at least the word still does its work. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. That and, and that that yeah, the word is still there, and yeah. you know I always love the accompanying prayer that so many pastors will give. You know um, that this isn't my my voice, but this is I'm trying to you know be God's voice, and mm, and uh, uh, this kind of humility that goes with it. But of course, again, this emphasis on the word and our t- tradition led to, and you know, if you go to some of the particularly the East Coast churches, the pulpit right in the center of the church, again, emphasizing the word. Um, and then also, you know, of course, in our tradition was kind of the removal from all these things that took away from that that hearing of the word, the, the things of distraction. So it kind of, in, you know, becomes really part of our tradition. And our most of our Presbyterian churches today are still very, very low on on having a lot of a lot of images in mm-hmm. it, right? We 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 have some. Um, I think the the technical rule is you can have an image of Christ in His humanity, and that's kind of the rule. But there's no, there's not just images just filling the sure. walls in the tradition. Sure. Um, and uh, anyway. Um, this is a major, a major, major theme. Um, I think I was talking about within this too, just this idea of this, the laity um, um, not being, um, um, not necessarily being uh, able to read. And um, I did want to point out one of my favorite historians, Miriam Usher Chrisman. She was a 
awesome. She looked at, at literacy and, and Reformation Strasbourg in particular. Um, and she was really the one to point out this kind of bridge between um, a, a kind of a pre-literate society and the emergence of a literate society. So she does um, a lot of work with that in Strasbourg, talking about it's not the literate society. We don't put our current ideas about literacy and impose it onto the 16th century. And I think that's important for us to know when we're talking about the Reformation and we talk about this shift in today and what, well, they did it then, but then is different than now and what, Mm -hmm. and and that, and what that, and what that looks like. So, you know, again, we're talking about people that, well, we want to take our church back to where it was in the 16th century. It doesn't make sense within the context of where those people were even with their education. So. You know, it, it makes me appreciate even more. Um, I have uh, the Brain Family Bible. It was a gift from um, my um, great, great, great grandparents to my great, great grandparents as a, 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 as a wedding gift. And the fact that they gave it to them attests to the fact that they were able to read. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that, you know, I realize, you know, again, as we're talking about, you know, universal education was not really all that um, uh, common until the late 19th century. Right. Um, so that's, that's pretty interesting. What, uh, it, what is interesting is you point that out. When you look at, so that we've got all kinds of um, publication run records and also purchasing records because but because books went to these big book fairs and they right. were sold. Bibles were still purchased and even purchased by families uh, that were illiterate because yeah. they recognized some kind of value in the sure. word, even in if they themselves Bible. couldn't yeah. read it. And so when you get to some of our early American history, a lot of one of the few things that came over, for example, on the Mayflower were the, was the family Bible, right. even if it had been purchased for the family prior to people being able to read. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah, it is kind of an interesting, interesting piece there. Um, and I think, in a way, one of the things Calvin talks about here is that the spoken word itself um, functions almost as a sacrament in the church. And, you know, we see that not only is it in worship, but it always accompanies, it always accompanies the sacraments. You aren't performing sacraments without scripture read aloud. And as, if you're in the Presbyterian world, you know that. That's central to, to who we are. Um, not magical, not that it's transformed some kind of magic word, but rather that the Holy Spirit's present yes. in it. Yes, um, yes, yeah. And when we were when we were uh, preparing, I, I mentioned the sort of the name it claim it folks mm-hmm. who who believe that who sort of attribute a magical sense to hearing scripture and and speaking scripture, and that somehow that's going to you know have power to right. affect whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. But I I I, I do think that. I I agree that that the reading of scripture has this kind of sacramental function through the presence of the spirit. Yeah, there is yeah. a presence in the reading of the word. Right, yeah. right. I am um, I invited a a young woman to be our liturgist last Sunday and she was reading scripture for the first time as an adult really in, in front of the church. She was so excited but she was also very taken by the gravity yes. of the situation. Yes. For her this was um, it was awesome, yes, and um, she did awesome. By the that's, way, <laughs> that's cool. That's cool. <laughs> In the more casual sense of that term, um, and then finally, I, I think what's interesting with this, as people are hearing the word and reading it for themselves, 
Um, unfortunately, what begins to happen is people begin to interpret it without having the broader <laughs> context. So they are taking these sound, some of the same stuff that happens today. They ter- take it out of context and use it to support in, in frequently um, political actions. Mm. And there's a very famous, um, well, there's a series of revolts of the, of the peasants' revolts, but as the peasants pick up on themes from biblical themes and reading it, um, they begin to incorporate these into their complaints. And mm. famous is known as the 12 Articles by the Swabian um, peasants. And it leads to the German peasants' revolt of 1525. And so then... Um, while it has since been um, proven probably wrong, there's if you see the modern um, Luther um, oh, nineteen maybe ninety version of Luther movie with Joseph Fiennes, uh. they actually indicate that Luther was held responsible for the German peasants' war because they heard. Um, that they should read the Bible, and they applied it. And 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 Luther responds on the murdering, thieving hordes of peasants with <laughs> um, on how though that's not how you use scripture. Yeah. But um, now, in retrospect, more 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 um, historians have said that's really not fair to put that on Luther's mm. shoulders. Peasants were, peasants were using this for their own advantage, but it does. It also strikes you why something like a catechism and why yes. a bigger, broader study yes. is so important. And that's what yes. we're trying, of course, to bring to you here. Well, and and that's one of the things I love about our Reformed tradition. And, of course, also the Lutheran tradition does this, the Episcopalian tradition, the Catholic tradition. They, they all have this sort of sense of reading the Scripture within the rule of faith, mm-hmm. which is, which, you know, is represented by the catechism. And and, um, uh, you know, one of the things I experienced outside of those traditions in the Protestant world is um, it, it can be kind of an anything goes yeah. kind of a situation. And I've even had someone tell me, you know, why should I, you know, why should I listen to what you say about the Bible and not, not just take it the way I think it take it understand it the way i think it it, it's meant to be you know and you know it's because it's kind of there's kind of an irony there because Mm -hmm. you know people want to insist that well the bible's the the bible is meant for us to be able to access it directly and they kind of almost take the priesthood of all believers and and sort of almost twist that into i can read this for myself however it you know whatever it means to me and and you know it's it's a little bit like well let's see yeah i've spent you know at the time i've spent decades studying this this you know and and reading it carefully and and coming at it from the t- standpoint of of trying to understand it and 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 um that's even even sometimes in the presbyterian world that's a case that you that's hard to make yeah. is, is why should people um, you know, because pe- people people are raised on that. Well, I can interpret the scripture for myself. Exactly. And, exactly. You know, we we do. We, you know, we have the doctrine of the perspicacity of scripture, which means that basically we believe that anyone can read the Bible and get come away from right. it with enough understanding right. to 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 have faith right. in Jesus Christ and to, and to, and to trust in God. But that doesn't mean that anyone can read it exactly. and come away with an accurate understanding of what's going on. <laughs> exactly. Well, okay. And so, as after 1525, when the German peasants' wars happened, and Luther responded on the with the on the murdering, thieving hordes of peasants. I say that again. Um, then he comes out with, "Oh my gosh, I need to have some kind of 
help. And that's when the catechisms come out. Mm-hmm. And that's when the hymn books, that's, this is like right, this is what I do, right? Right when the hymn books come out. And then by 1528, church visitations are people actually beginning to have some kind of context in which to understand the scriptures. Yeah, yeah. And so he kind of takes it can back control over it. Um, but by then the cat's out of the bag yes, and then you get all yes, these wild groups yes. that form. So, yeah. So those are the, that's the main thing. Although just to give you a couple other things that Calvin pulled out um, was the emphasis on faith, that the miracles only come true in the context of faith. And, um, yeah, and I would say, you know, in both cases, I mean, the widow at Zarephath, Elijah said, go and make one last meal, and mm-hmm. the, the, the jar of meal will not be empty, and the, and the jug of oil will not fail. And so she had right. to trust that promise, exactly. basically, because she was going to make one last meal for her son, and her, for herself and her son, before they were preparing to die because of the drought. Exactly. And, yeah. and so she had to trust him. And the same thing is true for Naaman. <laughs> Naaman, exactly. if you know the story, Naaman was offended that Elijah wouldn't even come out to meet him and just yes, sent word yes. to go bathe in the, in the Jordan the, River yes, yes. seven times. And, and um, you know, uh, it's Naaman's um, basically servant who says, well, if the prophet had told you to do something hard, wouldn't you have done it? You know, yeah. how much more to do this and, and be healed? Exactly. And, and so even though he was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that Naaman was a, was a prime example of trusting faith. Nevertheless, he does he follow still through. follows through. Yeah. And then, um, um, the, the third theme that comes out is the sovereignty of God mm. and that God's going to do what God's going to do. And, um, it's not up to you. Um, and, and that God can, again, can preserve us for what purpose God has for us. Sure. So. Well, and I, you know, as, as I concluded my segment, I talked about, you know, you can't, no one can constrain God's grace. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Hi, everybody. And we're back. And, uh, you know, as we're, thinking about this passage and how it how it what we might want to preach about it or how it kind of impacts our lives um we're really thinking about kind of how this passage really pulls out the edginess and um kind of foreshadows um jesus's um death and resurrection and i think um i wanted to point out to alan maybe have alan top in about how does how does this challenge our our thoughts about jesus yeah thanks christy you know I mean, I grew up in church like a lot of you did, and, um, you know, I'm thinking about the images uh, of Jesus on the walls of our Sunday school classes as we were growing up as children. Typically, they were all in these very peaceful settings. Jesus is just going about going around doing all these good things and it's it's you know he's always got a smile on his face and everybody around him is always smiling mm-hmm. and it's like you know there's this it's this he's just doing a lot of good things and then it's only when he goes to Jerusalem that he runs afoul of these these bad people who want to mm-hmm. kill him and and with Luke's gospel i mean we see this elsewhere in the new testament right, right? but with Luke's gospel with him re- arranging it so that this is the beginning of Jesus public ministry we see that no, there was an edge to Jesus' ministry from the very beginning, mm-hmm. and and he intentionally pushed that edge to some extent, and he was in danger from the very beginning, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and that's a different image, I think, of Jesus' ministry than we tend to assume. I, I think it is, and when I when I think of that, 
that puts a whole different spin on my call as a Christian, really, Surely. too. Well, it does. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you a story about something that happened to me. I was pastor of a church called a Community of the Servant Savior in Houston, and the church was destroyed by fire mm-hmm. in 2010, and I had just recently preached a sermon. It was right after it was right after Easter, and I just preached a sermon on the Passion Sunday, and talked about how um, you know um, we as Christians claim to follow a man who called us to take up our cross and and die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 in fact, some of the folks who commented on social media about our church were had gone back basically that was the last sermon that had been posted on my sermon blog before the fire happened wow. and so then it was it was known it was it was a news thing around the PCSA right. and a lot of people you know expressed their support for us and um uh one of the comments was how appropriate that you know the last ser- that the sermon on your pastor's webpage calls attention to the fact that we as Christians uh, follow a man who called us to come and, and take up our crosses and mm-hmm, die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so it does impact us. I think we, we, you know, nobody goes to seminary and takes out debt in order to lose their lives. We, we go right. because we think we, we right. want to have build this career. We want to be fulfilling that we, we want, we want to be fulfilling for us. We, we hope to succeed at our careers. And, you know, it's, um, the, the reality is, is that following Christ in discipleship is in and of itself a hard thing in mm-hmm. any culture. And, right. you know, serving the kingdom of God in pastoral ministry it's even harder. Is it even harder and harder? Right. Yeah. And so here's this, you know, and so here's this scripture that, um, well, first of all, I always probably had lumped together that it was, um, it was the group that initially, um, were angry, you know, and, and, and that Jesus provoked this, mm-hmm. I think also gives us a really different spin because it reminds us that, Jesus wants us to be a little bit uncomfortable as Mm -hmm. we're following. And I think it really fits. He wants us to challenge the status quo. We don't just get to sit there and say, oh, I was born a Christian and therefore Jesus loves me and I'm saved and life is going to be good and perfect, but really to... All my dreams are going to come true. Yeah, just just to it's it's this edginess that Jesus introduces into. Yes. This is not going to be easy, and if you think it is, then you are misunderstanding why I came. Yeah, I mean the 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 fact that the people responded positively initially was because they saw Jesus as bringing the year of the Lord's favor to them, mm-hmm. and and when he suggested that it might go to someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, that was something that, you know, really pushed them, you know, and I think we have, we, we, you know, it's easy for us to look back and say, oh, those silly Jewish people, you know, they assumed that they were the chosen people. Well, how many church folks do that today? I mean, we we in the church have taken on that, that mindset that we're in Mm -hmm. and other people are out. Mm -hmm. 
and and we tend to want to constrain God's grace. Mm-hmm. You know, we want God's grace to be for us because right. it's like we're the elder son in the po- parable of the prodigal son. We've earned it, and so we want to we want to be you know we want God's grace to be for us, and we don't want God's grace to be for people out there who don't deserve it because yeah. they don't deserve it. Yeah, they haven't earned it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what's really interesting is even though we say one narrative that we've been taught is that, you know, um, uh, we're saved by grace, saved by grace. I think we tend to have this other thing of but but not them. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really well, I think we have this other narrative, but I earned it. But I earned it. Yeah, Yeah, but I earned it. (laughs) Right. I deserve it. I deserve it. Or even, you know, even. Even in people that don't say that, I think it still comes out in how they view the world. It's an implication. Because, yep. because then there's a step of, well, you're not, you haven't, you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and therefore you, because you haven't said these words in this way, therefore you aren't saved. It's a, there's this interesting. Just simply, you're outside. You don't come yeah. to church like I do. You don't do the things mm-hmm. I do. You're outside. And so that means you're outside of God's grace. Yeah. And Jesus' message was that, no, really kind of nobody's outside of God's grace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and and, it, and it, it challenges our very notions of, of church and discipleship because maybe it's American Christianity, I don't know, but we have this sort of, you know, uh, you know, uh, self-reliance. I, 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 I worked it for, I've been, I've been faithful all my life. I worked for this. Mm-hmm. I built this up. I've built this life of faithfulness and, and, and I deserve it. And, and we, we won't say that out loud, of course, but it's right. sort of an, an, it's a, it's a subconscious, um, just assumption that people tend to make, you know, I right. worked hard. Right. I have been right. worked hard to be faithful as a Christian. And, and these people over here don't deserve the right. same reward right. that I get. Right. You know, it's yeah. like we're, we're, yeah. we're working for a reward. Grace is a reward that we get for well, all of our efforts. You know, and part of that is, I think part of, part of outside of the church, our mentality about life, you mm. know? And so what an interesting shift. I mean, if, if you really can, can remove yourself from mm-hmm. that mindset, which is so part of us and just be here because you're called to be there, um, and not to pass judgment on anybody else or what they're doing, but rather to just embrace them rather to just be an extension of God's love Absolutely. because you're called. That's a really that's the calling. That's the calling. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the calling. And, and, when I think about the promise of that, mm-hmm. then and, and the church functioning like that, that's what gets me really excited. Surely. Well, and you know, he, here's Elijah going to this Phoenician widow. Yeah. I mean, the Phoenicians had been Israel's Ill enemies for for centuries exactly exactly <laughs> they had now there were times when some of the jewish kings had alliances with the phoenician kings right but right. but they were rivals and and especially in terms of territory there were constant battles over where the dividing lines were right. and towns changed hands you know right. between these various rivals so there was constant fighting and warfare going on right. between them. And and Elijah goes to this Phoenician widow and and not only spares her and her son's life, but that becomes the means by mm-hmm. which he, exactly. as God's prophet, is Ex- preserved. Exactly. 
I mean, think about Naaman. Oh my gosh. Was there anything in an Assyrian army commander in and of himself that could have deserved being healed from his leprosy by Elisha? Yeah. I mean, we would, I mean, we might, we might think of, you know, uh, some some military commander in in um, in the Taliban or something, you know. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and right. Uh, you know, I mean, we've and and throughout throughout my career, you know, there've been these people that people just can't see as being even any potential way beneficiaries of God's grace. Right. You know, for a long time, it was could Adolf Hitler be saved? Yeah, you yes, know, and yes, then it yes, was yes. Manuel Noriega. Oh yeah, back back with the whole Nicaraguan yeah, yeah. thing, and 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 then it was Osama bin Laden, yep. you know, yep. and all the big enemies of our country. Right. You know, we've we've always had the, Vladimir Putin. You know, right? Uh, can can God's grace extend even to them? Mm. And you know, I, I guess in, I'd have to say, based on this passage, you know, the point is that's God's business. Exactly. Exactly. That's God's business. And I'm. I. I don't have any business trying to constrain God's grace from anybody. Yeah. I. I agree. And I keep thinking. I keep going to Sigma Freud as you're talking about this, (laughs) because you know he'll talk about you know the 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 psychosis of the mind, and then he'll talk about you know how this then it passes out to people. But I tend to think of even these people where evil takes in ultimately as having some kind of psychosis, psychosis so, some fundamental wrong with them. Um, so what an interesting space. So can you view a murderous dictator as mentally ill? <laughs> well, exactly. Um, yes, actually, I, I, I do think so. Yeah. Um, is there forgiveness for them? Yeah. That's God's business. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, that's and, not, and here, here yeah. again, you know, we we have these we have these sort of human measures that we in, in, insert into God's grace. You know, right? Yeah, I've sinned and I've done things that were wrong, but it what I my sin compale pales in comparison, you know, with these people. Well, that's that's misses the whole point is that right. there's no comparison when it comes to sin. You've either sinned or you haven't sinned, right? And and there's no there's no gradients of sin. Well, it's just we've all sinned, and and none of us deserves. God's grace and we get it anyway because that's what great that's yeah, that's why it's grace yeah, exactly exactly so what an interesting I mean uh, when you when you really think about the awesome possibility of that mm-hmm. then I think is when you finally begin to get a sense of who God is sure. and that is almost impossible for us so. well I think it is because we're stuck in this in this mindset of um, you know, I've got to be faithful to earn my reward. Yep, exactly. And, and it's not about a reward. Exactly. It's about, you know, the year of the Lord's favor that, that is just undeserved and it's right. simply God's grace unconstrained. You know, one of the, one of the themes in Acts, in fact, one of the key words in Acts is unhindered. Um, and, and primarily it relates to the preaching of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And, and Luke wants to demonstrate how no matter what happened, no matter what opposition there was, the preaching of the gospel continued unhindered. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, the gospel will not be constrained, but I want to say also I want to apply that to God's grace. God's grace will not be constrained. Yeah. And, That's and right. yeah. those, of, those who try to constrain it, 
are are they're like this Jewish the the folks of Nazareth in this synagogue, mm-hmm. you know, um, they're enraged because they think themselves worthy and they exactly. think the others unworthy. Uh, exactly, and they're they're putting they're really taking a path that is that is very different from from um, the path of God's exactly. story of salvation. Right, and Jesus is there to to show us. I guess. Yeah. Um, well, and and, and I again, I, I want to bring this in that that Luke writes the story of Jesus' ministry and the story of the early church's ministry into the larger story of God's salvation. Yes. And this perspective on grace begins from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. It, yeah. It's yeah. not something that comes in with Jesus. You know, Moses says right. to the children of Israel right. is, before they cross over into the promised yep. land, it was not because your ancestors did anything special. It was because the Lord loved them that he chose right. them. Right? Yeah, and right. So, and of course, he chose them then to be a blessing to all the families right. of the earth, yeah. not just so that they could enjoy the benefits of being chosen. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, and then that, so that's the, I, I love, that's one of the things I love about Luke and Acts is that it really, it really, puts the story of Jesus and the early church into that larger suite yes, of yes. the story of God's saving work beginning yeah. with Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I love that too. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.